You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome, everybody. Good to see you. Welcome especially to our guests. It's nice to have you here. Um, a couple of uh, quick things on, this is not part of the presentation, but uh, uh, just a quick midrash on Gary's note um, about starting, you know, in, in Jewish time, um, and then we'll have like 10 to 15 minutes. So um, in the book of Exodus, um, when God uh, tells Moses that, uh, he, that God is going to bring the 10th plague on the Egyptians, God says, Kechatzot. Um, that God will come kechatzot to Egypt, which means something like midnight. And so the commentators ask, like, why would God say something like midnight? That doesn't really make sense. God is usually pretty precise. And uh, the answer the commentators give is because God's timing is precise, but human watches are uh, are often uh, riddled with error. So God didn't want the magicians and the pharaoh in Egypt to say, oh, it was just a coincidence that all of the firstborn in Egypt died around midnight. But it's not when God said God was going to come, so it must not have been God, right? So um, so that's kechatzot. Um, uh, that God will come down to Egypt. Um, and so that means that we do everything. Sort of on time. Kiss 7.30, like around, like something like 7.30, something like 10 minutes. Um, I love that. I love Jewish time. The Jewish math is great. The, um, the, the Mishnah, the Mishnah, uh, the rabbinic text talking about the laws of the Sabbath um, uh, starts uh, with the phrase, Yitziot Shabbat Shtaim Shehem Arba, um, which means like the goings out of Shabbat um, are two which are four. Right? So there are two kinds, but there are actually four kinds. That's Jewish math for you. It's like two, but it's kind of four. Um, so that's what we're going to do. The, the Seder is kind of like that. The Seder involves all sorts of math. Um, and one of the great uh, pieces of math um, is the play between uh, 14 and 15, which appears throughout the Seder. Um, so if you look at the beginning of your Haggadah, so it's Roman numeral, um, well, it would be Roman numeral XI. It's the purple page at the very beginning. Someone count the number of steps that there are in the Seder, and let me know what you come up with. Everybody see where I am? The purple page, it's, it's uh, after V-I-I-I, but it's, it, there's no like number on that page. In some of them, it's XI. It's, oh, good. So in some of them, the page number is there. Okay. So who's got to count? They're numbered. They're numbered. Wow, yeah. Fifteen. Very good. They're numbered. Excellent. So the trick of this is, so there are 15 steps of the Haggadah, right? That's the, um, that's the source text, the basic text uh, that sort of guides the Seder night. Um, Seder itself, of course, means order, and so there's an order to the flow of the service. More on that in a second. So there are listed out 15 steps, but there's a debate um, among the rabbis about whether the step for motzi and matzah are one step or two steps. Because, of course, the motzi is the blessing of the bread, and the bread that we eat at the Seder is matzah, right? So there's a debate. Is it one step or two steps? So if it were one step instead of two steps, how many steps would there be total? Fourteen. Fourteen, exactly. So there's an interesting thing numer- numerically about these numbers, 14 and 15. Anybody know what the, uh, what, what the significance of those numbers is in the Jewish tradition? So in Judaism, we have uh, this uh, system. The Hebrew alphabet is not only an, an alphabetical system, but also a numerical system. So the, um, uh, ancient uh, uh, Israelites, and still Jews today, uh, use the Hebrew alphabet as uh, their numerical system, as our numerical system. Uh, and the, uh, the nu- numerology for 14 are the Hebrew letters Yud Dalid. Anybody know what word that spells? Yad. Yad, exactly. And anybody have any recollection of the uh, significance of the word Yad, uh, which means what? Hand. Hand. The word Yad in the Passover story? 
how many fingers and uh, the, how many different plagues they, you know. Ah, uh, good. This is not necessarily what I was thinking of, but good. So ten, ten plagues, ten fingers, right? But also, it, there's other significance as well, right? We say um, uh, that God took the Israelites out of Egypt, biyad chazakah v'zroa netuya, a strong uh, hand and an outstretched arm, which is why on the Seder plate we have a zroa, right? A shank bone. That's usually people think, oh, it's because of the Paschal lamb. Actually, no. The, the symbol on the Seder plate that's for the Paschal lamb, does anybody know? The egg. The egg, exactly. Why? Because it's roasted. We roast the egg and we put it on the, because the Paschal lamb was roasted. The shank bone is for Zeroah, God's outstretched arm um, with which God redeemed the Israelites. So that's 14. That's God's arm. And what's the significance of 15 in the Jewish tradition? Anybody know? What letters spell 15? God's name. Good. God's name. The letters Yud, also 10, as in Yod, right? That's the 10 uh, that makes 14 in Yod. Yod is, uh, Yud is 10, and Dalit is 4, that makes 14. 15 is Yud, and what's the next letter after Dalit? Hey, exactly. Very good. So, which is uh, uh, one of God's names and also part of God's name. Right? So uh, God's uh, unpronounceable name in the Bible is, are the letters Yud and He and Vav and He, um, but also uh, very often the Bible refers to God just as Yah. Um, uh, and so we have this interplay, and it's throughout the Haggadah, there's a number of other places where you can see it, of this uh, um, dance between the, uh, the numbers 14 and 15 that keep on reappearing. So numbers are really important to the Haggadah. Um, anybody know... Um, off the top of your head, a number that you find to continually appear and reappear in the Haggadah? Four. Four. four, exactly. So so what are some examples of where four appears in the Haggadah? Four, four, four sons, four cups of wine. <laughs> what? Four questions. Excellent. Good. So there are a handful of uh, fours that appear, okay? So building on the significance of the number four... Um, I want to share with you a teaching by my teacher, Ron Wolfson, that to me totally um, unpacked and made more relevant the structure and the contours of the Seder, um, and that enabled for me for more tools that I could use at my disposal to enhance the um, the, the, the connection that anybody around my Seder might have to the Seder, okay? So we'll get into the numbers in a second. Where, where I wanna, the place I want to start from this with this is something that uh, many of you may have heard me say before. So one of my teachers is Rabbi Erwin Kula, um, and he says versions of this in a lot of different places. Um, this is just one uh, construction of it that I found uh, in an article. So Rabbi Erwin Kula is the president of an organization called CLAW um, that runs a fellowship of which I'm a part called Rabbis Without Borders. Um, and he says this, he says, religion is a technology of human flourishing. There's no tradition on the face of the earth that wasn't at one time an innovation designed to help us flourish. A tradition is simply an innovation that makes it. Right, so in other words, all traditions, all religions are tools aimed at human flourishing. Right? They're all uh, ways of accomplishing a certain goal, a certain job. And the question that we, for us as moderns who've inherited this tradition, one of the jobs that we need to ask ourselves about the traditions that we've inherited is what, what's, what is this tool designed to do? What's the job that this tool is trying to get done for us? And then the question is, how do I properly use that tool? How do I use that tool to my benefit to the maximum capacity of that tool to enable uh, the flourishing that it's trying to, uh, trying to lead us toward, right? Make a little bit of sense? Okay. So then the question that I have is, what is the job that the Haggadah, or that the Seder generally, is trying to get done? Good. Tell the story of the Exodus, right? So now we go a little bit deeper than that. Like, what's the point of telling the story of the Exodus? And there's all sorts of things that we could unpack about the uh, the, the importance of memory, uh, the the significance, the moral significance of uh, of the story of Passover that it yields for life. There's all sorts of things that you've been following the writings that I've been doing over the past 
20 some odd days um, leading up to Passover. I've tried to unpack some of those things. Um, but let's just take that on its surface, right? The, um, the, the term for this book, right, that we use at the Seder is one, say it with me, is what? Haggadah, good, Haggadah. Um, and Haggadah, the idea of Haggadah, anybody know what the term Haggadah itself means? Telling, good, right? And it comes from the verse in the Bible that says, Vihigadita Levincha, right? You should tell it, you should tell the story, you should teach it to your children, right? So it's even not, even more than just tell the story, but tell the story in such a way that it can pop, that it could probably be communicated to the next generation, especially to children, right? And the Haggadah is designed in large part as a, as a pedagogy, right? As a means for evoking and eliciting connections to the story, of telling the story, but in ways that resonate with people's hearts and with people's minds. So I think that that's the tool. That's the, that's the, the job that's trying to get done is tell the story. The tool is the Haggadah, and the tool that it uses, the, the technology, is to communicate the story or evoke the story in such a way that resonates with the people around the table. And yet, that isn't really the experience, I think, that most of, that many of us, it's certainly me, grew up with. In the, I loved my Seders growing up. I have really wonderful, warm memories of my uh, grandfather uh, leading Seder out of this Haggadah. Um, we read the whole thing through, right? Uh, you know, there was some English and some Hebrew, but we sort of stuck by the book. Beautiful, wonderful memories, and I have deep connections to it, but in terms of utilizing the tool to its maximum capacity, I'm not so sure that it really hit the mark. So the question for us is, how do we use the tool to our maximum, to its maximum capacity? That's the question. And what I want to suggest is a framework that my teacher, Dr. Ron Wolfson, proposes in this wonderful, wonderful book that you can find on Amazon anywhere. It's called uh, Passover, The Complete Guide to Spiritual Celebration. Really excellent book and prepare it for anybody who's thinking about preparing a Seder. Um, and so in a re- really revolutionary, eye-opening way, uh, Ron Wolfson breaks down the Seder from these 15 or 14, depending how you look at it, component parts, and creates an, uh, a more identifiable structure to the whole thing. Because if you look at it, you might be able to identify the different parts, but you also sort of like, there's all sorts of readings, depending on what Haggadah you have, and all sorts of uh, prayers and texts and traditions, and it doesn't really, it, to the untrained eye, it sort of looks like sort of like one flowing thing, and you don't necessarily know, well, I can skip this, I can pull this out, I can reinterpret this, I can do something creative here, but if you know the structure you have much more of, a, of, an, of an opportunity to say, okay, you know, this was the job that that piece is trying to get done, but I can do that job in a different way. And the reason why, how you can know that that's kosher is because if that wasn't kosher, there wouldn't be 3,000 printed editions of the Haggadah, right? So the, 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 the idea that you could do creative things with the Haggadah and you could take things out and reinterpret and reapply and whatever, it's totally kosher, Right? Now, it depends on what your goal is, right? If your goal is, let's get through this as fast as possible because everybody's saying, when can we eat, right? I think that that's not using the tool to its maximal capacity. But if you say to yourself, how do we make it so nobody is asking themselves, when do we eat? Because we're so engrossed in the uh, telling of the story, which is a large part, but not entirely part, uh, not the entire part of the Seder, uh, a large part of it, because there is part of the Seder obviously is eating, but a large part of the Seder is telling the story. So how do we maximize people's engagement with that? So the structure that Ron Wolfson points out, uh, which I think is really amazing. So he says that the Seder is actually not divided into 15 parts, but really it's four parts. It's, he calls it a talk feast in four acts. Okay, and for it, I mean, it's amazing that he was able to see this. And once you see this, it's hard to look at the Haggadah in a different way. Okay, so for of course significant to the Haggadah, the ways that we said. So you have the first act, which is the beginning, right? The, before the seder even starts, you have a prologue. That's all the prep before the seder. You clean your house. You search for chametz, the unleavened bread. You destroy all the chametz. 
you, uh, you make your Seder plates, you set the table, you do all the food, you light the candles, okay, that's the prologue. Then you have the overture. The overture, like any overture, kind of gives you a sense of all of the symbols and themes that you're going to encounter and experience during the course of the play, right? That's what you have in, in, in a musical overture, right? And I just... I know I'm like, uh, my time is running, but I, as I was putting this together today, Ron Wilson doesn't use overture, and, and I liked it, and I couldn't get out of my head. Um, the overture, curtains, lights, we'll sing the lows, we'll hit the heights. Oh, and what heights we'll hit? On with the show, this is it. Okay, so that's the overture, but it's Kadesh Orchatz, that's the uh, plan of the Seder. And then you have four scenes, right? So you have four acts of four scenes each. So in the in the beginning, right, the preliminaries, the first scene, are you have Kadesh you have the Kiddush, right? The, the, the sanctification of the day over wine. And then you have Urchatz, which is uh, washing uh, our hands, which we do ritually without a blessing. Um, uh, there's a whole bunch of reasons and significance for that, but we do it in part to prepare for uh, the next thing, which is Karpas. Karpas, um, uh, Ron Wilson points out, and I think that it's fantastic, although there's some people who might disagree with, with, with this, um, because they say, well, you got to like enter the meal with a real, or enter the time where you eat the uh, matzah with like a real hunger for matzah, if such a thing could possibly exist. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, so they say, okay, carpas should just be like your little piece of uh, parsley or whatever in salt water. Um, but the truth is, if you, if you look at the Seder as it was in the ancient world, and you look at it in these four acts, what, and you look at the significance of the fact that you have a washing before you even have carpas, what you see is that carpas is actually really supposed to be your appetizer. It's what's supposed to prevent people from saying, when do we eat? Right? So you have the carpas. So when I give you permission, and hopefully we're going to do it here. I, I was talking with Josephine um, about uh, having like a real like vegetable appetizer at the beginning of the Seder so that everybody has something to nosh on as you uh, do the telling of the story. And you can sort of just relax and like lay in and, and, and do the thing. Right? So when you go to the theater, you, know, you, you get your snacks. Right? And that way you're not super hungry and worrying about like what time the show is going to end so you can go to eat. Okay? So that that's uh, Karpas, and then Yachatz, breaking the matzah, because you're going to use that later. So everything in the first act is sort of setting you up for what comes later. And then the curtain is Halach Ma'anya, right, which is connected to the breaking of the matzah, uh, that, uh, and so it sort of introduces the main theme, right, the, the main conflict or tension in the story, which is the, uh, which is the matzah, which Chazan Marian is going to talk about, uh, the tension of, you know, whether this is poor person's bread or whether this is the bread of freedom. And in some ways it's both, and so the, 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 the trajectory of the Seder is to navigate that tension between the experience of slavery and also the experience of freedom, which we do both of in the course of the Seder. Okay, act two is the tellings of the story. Now, this is amazing. Okay, so there are four scenes, right? Like, like we have in the rest. Um, and if to the untrained eye, this just looks like one sort of long thing. And like, what do I do? And like, how, what do I cut out? But if you look at it, each scene follows a distinct structure. Okay, each scene starts with questions and then provides answers to those questions, or an attempt to answer those questions, and then provides praise. Questions, answers, praise. And so if you know that, then to me it totally opens up the possibilities of what you can do in each of those places. Because if what at its core you're supposed to start with in each of those sections is a set of questions, you don't have to be limited by the four questions that the that that we have at the beginning of the first act. Could say those and also evoke other questions that we might have around the table. You don't have to be limited by the telling that exists in the Haggadah. There's some options of how you could tell the story. But the telling is dependent on the people sitting around the table because this is a pedagogy and you need to meet learners where they are. So you can have skits, you can have trivia, you can have all sorts of ways of puppet shows, all sorts of ways of telling the story, right? But you can do questions, telling, and then praise. Chazan and I were talking about this today because we're developing um, uh, the Seder that we're going to do here on Friday night. And um, I said, okay, like, you know, some of the praise that we have as part of the Seder, you know, people would miss it if we didn't have it. You know, there's uh, Hallel and all sorts of things. 
But there's other things that like nobody really knows because that's the part they cut out because it doesn't have like a tune that goes along with it. Right? Everybody knows Dayenu, and that's pray. That's the praise section of uh, of the third scene of the second act. Everybody knows Dayenu, but not everybody knows Baruch Hamakom, which is the praise section of the first act. Right? Okay, so it's fine. So that may not be how you relate to praise or the people around your table or the kids, whoever relate to praise. So we're like thinking, okay, maybe we'll sing like I will survive or something like that as a way of expressing our joy at the. the survival of the Jewish people. But you have all sorts of tools at your disposal if you know the structure, right? The, the, so you have each of those tellings are, are start with questions, explanations, and praise. And then the curtain is the second cup. Act three is the feast, right? So, you know, note that this is, uh, that you have two full acts before you get to the feast, and you have a fourth one after. Okay, that's something that's lost to a lot of people. But the fourth one is really important because in the trajectory of the story, right, the trajectory of the story that we're supposed to be telling with the Haggadah, we say, that we start with degradation and we end with praise, right? But you can't do that if you only do the first part of the Seder. This, the last part of the Seder, the part after dinner, well, from dinner on, is all about exaltation, elevation, right? This is the moment in which matzah turns from being a, uh, the symbol of oppression and slavery to being the symbol of freedom, right? Um, and so that's why Act 4 is important in the structure of this talk feast. But Act 3 is the feast itself, so you the preparation for the feasts. Feast, you do. You wash your hands, which you do again before you eat. We eat um, the bread, which is matzah. We have uh, maror, the bitter herbs, which are commanded to eat as part of the seder, right? As symbolic food. And korach is uh, um, just another way of eating maror and matzah together. Um, that uh, um, Hillel like to eat sandwiches. Okay. Um, then you have uh, you have the meal. After the meal, safun, that's the afikomen, is dessert. I know it's not such a great dessert, but that's dessert. Um, then Barech, Birkat Hamazon, we, we thank God for the food we eat. So again, right, if you know that that's a structure, you don't have to say, okay, we're gonna skip, we're just gonna skip Barech, right? Because it seems to me that part of the, uh, uh, intrinsic to the telling of the story is a sense of thanksgiving and satisfaction for the incredible freedoms with which we've been gifted. So, if you don't, if, you, if like Birkat Amazon is not your thing after the meal, that's cool. But now you know that the structure is here. You could do Thanksgiving however you, however works for you, right? And then, uh, and then the curtain is the third cup, right? And Act Four is redemption, right? And it, it doesn't uh, surprise people probably that um, that. Part of Act Four is the fourth cup of wine, but Scene One is Elijah. Elijah is about redemption. Scene two is Halal. Scene three are songs, celebration. Scene four is the fourth cup. And the curtain is Nirza, which is uh, basically the, the song saying, we're done with the Seder and next year in Jerusalem, right? But the, the act of saying next year in Jerusalem is in that theme of moving from degradation to exaltation that we're, that we're, all of these pieces are talking about current and future redemption. Right, that the seder, the work of the seder, the work of the telling of the exodus. Because remember, we say at the beginning of the seder that the whole door of Ador Chayav Adam liroded at Smoki Ilu who Yotzemi Mitzrayim. In each and every generation, a person see himself or herself as if he or she had personally fled Egypt. Right, and that is true um, uh, in a in a in a local sense of kind of like experiencing the story from the inside, but also in our personal lives, we have. We're supposed to be thinking about what are the enslavements and oppressions that we have in our lives and what would redemption from them look like? And what are the brokenness and oppressive things that are in our world and what would redemption for our world look like? How is it possible now and how might it be possible in the future? So Act 4 is an incredible opportunity to invite the people at your Seder to dream with you about what a redeemed world would look like, what redeemed (laughs) lives would look like. And to start thinking of the tools that you might be able to develop together and the actions that you might be able to take together to build that redeemed world. Religion is a technology of human flourishing. A tradition is simply an innovation that makes it. The Haggadah is an innovation that was developed to get a certain job done. It made it. We continue to use it. But the challenge, I think, for us 
is to ensure that we're using it to its maximum potential. Thank you. Rabbi Creditor's topic, if I may. Passover pointers. Pointers. I have no idea what that means, but it's okay. All right. Let me begin with a question. How many Passovers are there? It's a trick question. Everybody studied with you can't answer. All right. Everybody studied with me knows that I, I love trick questions. How many Passovers are there? Three. You heard this question and answered before. All right. What, which are they? Passover that's coming up? No. <laughs> well, in a general way, yes, but no. For every Shabbat, we remember Passover. True, but not what I'm asking. <laughs> Keep going, David. You're going to hit it one of these days. I'm sure you've heard the answer. You've heard the question. All right, how many Passovers are there? The answer is three. Okay? The first one in Egypt. The last one is the ultimate Passover, the ultimate redemption of mankind. And the third is everything in between. So yes, the one coming is one of the in-between. But there's three. There's only three Passovers. The first, the last, and all that's in-between. The in-between is what we're really talking about tonight. Um, they did not have a Haggadah in, in Egypt. And I have no idea what the Haggadah would be in the, the end of days, the last one, the, the Geulta um, of redemption. Um, but the Haggadah of the one in the between has never remained the same. Has never remained the same. And that's my, you know, piece for tonight. There is an interesting book called the Polychrome Haggadah, which by coloring, coloring tells us that different pieces of the Haggadah were added at different times. There are core pieces that are from the Torah, and then as time went on, there were additional pieces added to the Seder, to the Haggadah text, and thus to the Seder experience. And it never remained the same. So I'm going to jump to three. One of them is this Haggadah, which is called the Survivor's Haggadah. And it was printed in Germany in 1946. For the survivors of the Holocaust that were in Germany, at this time, the first Seder after the Holocaust ended. This is not the same Haggadah as the one on the table. It is different. It has lots of things that look the same, but not all the same. Because the moment wasn't the same. So when it says, Avadim Hayinu, we were slaves, in that Haggadah it says, whom were we slaves to? In the Haggadah in front of you it says, we were slaves to? Pharaoh. And here it says, we were slaves to? Hitler. I'm just going to pull two of them. And, you know, here we ask, why do we eat um, bitter herbs? And you have the answer. And here in this Haggadah, they wrote, because we were intoxicated by the incense of Galut, diaspora, because we fled from one exile to another, because we reassured ourselves saying, ours will not be the fate that befell our people before us, because we did little to help ourselves and reestablish our destroyed homes and country. Namely, they did, were not Zionists and didn't go back to Israel when they could have get, get out of Europe before the Holocaust. So this Haggadah, just to jump a couple thousand years from the first through time, um, indicates that the Haggadah does not stay the same, but changes. So the next one I would like to talk about briefly is the Haggadah that was uh, very familiar in the 1960s. Namely, it was part of the campaign to free Soviet Jewry. And while the text in this, I was looking forward to going through it, the text didn't change, the illustrations do. And so you couldn't sit at the table looking at the illustrations to this Haggadah and feel that this one has illustrations about Soviet Jewry under the oppression of the Soviets. And we had supplements to this with, you know, songs of the time that um, instead of Chad uh, and Echad Miyodea, who knows one, we sang those songs instead. So the Haggadah never stays the same, it changes. So if you were going to put together a Haggadah for this weekend, what would you do to it? It's, this is semi-rhetorical, I'll take an answer, I can take an answer, but I'll, I want to go where I'm going in a second, and then I'll turn it over to the next speaker. Okay? And this is where I put the plug in for the Times Dispatch, by the way. Okay? Man nishtana halayla hazeh. 
What makes this Pesach different from all other Pesachs in Richmond, Virginia? <laughs> yeah, that's true. We're here. <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs> Richmond fell to the Union troops in 1865. And then just a few days later, the Civil War was over. And a few days after that, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. You can't sit at Seder now. With the events of this country, over the past months, the shooting of the policemen in Brooklyn, in Staten Island, Ferguson, etc., this, uh, this guy at UVA, you can't sit at Seder with the background of the Civil War coming to a close this moment, and not ask questions about slavery, redemption, reconciliation. You can't sit at Seder. If the Seder, if Haggadah changes, and Seders change, and yes, we've had this um, book around for a while, but it changes. What do we ask ourselves at this Seder, this week, weekend, that makes it different and makes it relevant. And I would suggest to you that there are issues that come out of our tradition that talk about these subjects and would be relevant to the Seder night. They're not going to be in any Haggadah you find. But if you want, there's probably on the website from my son that I wrote a sermon that has all the details in it, some of the, some of the ideas in it. Um, it's called Repentance, Reconciliation, Personal and Public, Judaism, the Consequences of the Civil War. I gave it on Kol Nidre 2010. Um, uh, and I want to cite only the ending from it. We had a person here in the city, in the city um, uh, who was a very special person. And his name was Alex Levenstein. Um, there's many people around the table who knew Alex. All right. Um, what you might not have known about Alex, I knew Alex before coming here. He was my congregate in Plainview, New York. Um, we, Pico, we knew each other way back. Uh, and then we, we, we met in Richmond, Virginia. It was the oddest thing of all. And we had some good times talking about that. Um, he was haunted by his experiences of the Holocaust throughout his life. And that someone like that, with his experience and his memory and the pain that he had, could go back and establish the rapport with the city of Halton and its children there, meant that there was a process of reconciliation that was transformational, which allowed him to do what he did. And by the way, some of the children on the plane that, that crashed were from his city, Halton. That's where they were from. Um, and I would like to think that the, the Haggadah, and I only want to point to these two, namely the one from the survivors, the remnant, and, and, the, and the one from uh, um, Soviet Jewry from the 60s, makes Passover transformation, has the opportunity to make it transformational if you don't, as long as you don't leave just a hackneyed repetition of text, but rather as an inclusion of the matters of the moment. And certainly we in Richmond, um, this was the, the, uh, from the Times Dispatch on Sunday, um, have an, a, a unique opportunity in time and place to talk about these issues at our Seder table. Thank you. I was at that Seder. You were at that Seder? Okay. Okay. The Haggadah had a letter A on it because it was produced by the Third Army of the United States and uh, Klausner. Right. And he was a friend of ours. Right. And this, this is a, a reproduction from that, uh, from, book. from that book, yes. Uh, while we're on the subject of things, amazing things that uh, um, Rabbi Creditor is responsible for uh, and, and produced, uh, Rabbi Creditor's son Menachem, in addition to the publishing a book of uh, uh, Rabbi Creditor's sermons, um, published a, a compilation last year, two years ago, um, with different essays um, on uh, Passover-related themes called Slavery, Redemption, and Everything Between. Um, and I actually have an essay in that uh, book, too. So you can find it on Amazon if you want. Slavery, Redemption, and Everything Between, uh, edited by Rabbi Menachem Creditor.
Our next speaker <laughs> is Khazan Marion Turk, our Khazan, beloved Khazan, who will be talking to us about matzah, how the bread of affliction becomes the bread of our salvation. Um, hi everyone. Um, so I'm not I'm not much of a I'm not much of a lecturer. So um, we'll we'll have a little bit of discussion, but. Um, so this this topic was sort of inspired by um, uh, a teaching that I heard years ago when I was a, a first year cantoral student in Jerusalem at the Conservative Yeshiva um, from one of my very favorite rabbis, Rabbi uh, Rabbi Goldfarb. So um, Rabbi Knopf actually um, talked mentioned briefly um, this. Uh, um, uh, phrase from the Talmud that tells us that the telling of the story of the Exodus requires that we begin with disgrace and conclude with praise. Okay? So I think that's a great framework for looking at the, specifically at matzah. Because what I would argue is that our matzah makes a journey through our Seder, just like we make a journey with our four cups of wine, right, we go through the different phases of the Seder, our matzah makes that same journey and we can make that journey with it. So at the beginning of the Seder, um, we are told that matzah is halach ma'anya, which is the bread of affliction, right? So would someone like to read the first passage here from the Haggadah? Behold the matzah. Behold the matzah, the bread of poverty, which our ancestors ate and eat. Let all who are hungry come and eat. All who are needy come and celebrate the Passover with us. Now we are here. Next year we will observe Passover in the land of Israel. Now many are still enslaved. Next year they all be free. So, according to this passage, what what are your associations with matzah? When you come to the Seder, you're sitting down, you're just thinking Seder, what are you thinking about matzah? What does matzah symbolize? Tradition. Tradition. Okay. Okay. Tradition being horrible right now. The human condition being really horrible right now in lots of places. Okay. And needing to somehow Okay, so you're thinking of it a little bit more globally, right? That matzah represents, but according to you, represents two things. Not only our sort of, you know, disgraced or depraved state now, but our need to change things. Okay? Anyone else? What does matzah represent? Okay, so we'll get to that. In the beginning of the Seder... Right when we approach the Seder, and especially when we're reading and singing this passage, matzah is the bread of affliction. Right, it's the bread of poverty. It's a symbol of our enslavement and of our degraded condition. Right. So you said that matzah represents freedom. Right. So that actually comes a little bit later in the Haggadah. So this next passage is from uh, the end of the Magid section when we talk about Pesach, Matzah, and Marar. We talk about the three main symbols of the um, uh, Haggadah. And it says of Matzah, does someone want to read in the middle? The Matzah is to remind... Matzah is to remind us that before the dough which our ancestors prepared for bread had time to ferment, the Supreme King of Kings, the Holy One, praised be He, revealed Himself to them and redeemed them. We read in the Bible, they baked matzah of the unleavened dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it is not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not linger, nor had they prepared any food for the journey. Okay. So here it's saying what you were saying, right? That that 
matzah is the symbol of our freedom, right? It's, it's um, the symbol of haste and hurriedness and lack of time, right? So the question is, how, how can matzah at the same time be a symbol of our slavery and also of our freedom? to the other. So what are we doing when we break that afikomen, when we break that middle matzah? Right? So I would argue that one of the things that we're doing is that we are um, symbolizing that duality of the matzah, right? That matzah at once symbolizes our slavery and our freedom. So if you turn over your sheet, there's a helpful text that I think bridges the gap between um, our two texts in the Haggadah. So in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 3, it says, You shall not eat anything leavened with it, for seven days thereafter you shall eat unleavened bread, bread of distress, for you departed from the land of Egypt hurriedly, so, the, so that you may remember the day of your departure from the land of Egypt as long as you live. So what does that add to our, to our symbolism of matzah? Exactly. Right. So I think that's the bridge between the bread of affliction and the bread of freedom, right? So many times in the Torah we are told to remember that we were slaves in Egypt and for that reason to remember the orphan, the widow, the needy in our midst. So when we go through the Haggadah, when we go through um, the journey that we take through the Seder, our matzah, um, like I said, journeys with us so that the humble matzah that we have at the beginning of our Seder also becomes the tool of our redemption and salvation. What else, um, what else is characteristic of matzah? Flat, okay, yeah. Tasteless. Tasteless. Okay, if matzah, huh? If matzah is flat, that kind of makes it the opposite of of chametz, right? Right? So what, when we approach our Passover Seder, what does chametz represent? ourselves. Right? Chametz is our ego, right? So when we purge our homes of chametz and when we burn chametz the day of the first night Seder, we are hopefully tearing down and purging ourselves of the fluffy, airy parts of our ego. And when you think about it, that's really the only way that we can approach a Passover Seder and have any hope for ourselves of redemption, right? We have to take ourselves down to a state of humility so that we can truly receive the message of redemption. And that's what our matzah is, right? Our matzah is our unleavened bread that has had no time to rise it's simple, it's humble, it's pure, it is what it is. And that's where we have to be when we arrive at the Seder table, because that's the only way that we can 
take our journey from slavery to freedom. And that's pretty much what I have. <laughs> okay. Are you going to introduce yourself? I guess I can do that. I can introduce you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so our, our last... A man, that, a man that needs no introduction, but deserves a major one. Exactly. Yeah. Um, oh. uh, Dr. Gary Goldberg, our love congregant, our adult ed coordinator, um, generator of many wonderful ideas at the synagogue, and our Thank last you. speaker for today. Thank you. So, um, I'm going to take a, I'm going to talk about something very quickly, um, a little bit off the beaten track, um, but definitely related to the holiday of Passover. Um, in each of the, the three major holidays that were, um, holidays of, um, of pilgrimage to Jerusalem, there was a particular book from the section of the Tanakh called the Ketuvim, um, the writings, um, that was associated with that particular holiday. So the holiday of Shavuot, we read the book of Ruth. The holiday of Sukkot, we read the book Kohelet. And on the holiday of Pesach, we read, we read a book in Hebrew called Shir HaShirim, um, which in the, uh, in English is translated into the Song of Songs. Um, and it is, um, it is a controversial book, right? I mean, um, well, you know, there, there, were, there, is, a, there is a whole um, uh, midrash about, or a history of how the rabbis got together to decide what books were holy enough to put into the canon. And there was a huge argument about particularly the book of Kohelet and the book Shir HaShirim, um, both of them have no mention anywhere in them of the of, of uh, or through the most of part of it. Certainly, Shir Shirim doesn't say anything about God per se, um, and um, they they were, you know, both cons- uh, particularly Shir Shirim was considered to be fairly raunchy and um, you know more kind of the kind of song that you might hear sung in a tavern, um, and uh, not really the kind of of, of, um, of, at least on the surface, a book that you, or a story that you would, you know, consider a holy uh, unto itself. Um, and yet, this book, um, one of our greatest sages, uh, Rabbi Akiva, um, basically said the following. He said, the whole Torah is holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of the holies. Right? So there is something about this book that, you know, struck the chord um, for, um, for, for the rabbis and particularly the Kabbalists, you know, who, um, you know, who, who uh, saw this book as, as, as having, a, you know, a tremendous value, a depth um, that, 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 that m- many other parts of the Bible did not, did not reach. And the, and the question is, you know, what, what is it that, 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 that allowed that to be the case? Because if you actually read, and I'm going to read the first chapter so you get a sense of what this is about. I'm going to read it in English. The Song of Songs by Solomon, and it begins, basically it is a, a back and forth conversation, uh, a, a po- poetry um, between two lovers. Um, and you can think of them as a man and a woman. You can think of them as, um, ha- you know, uh, in allegorical two people that are just very attracted to each other. Um, um, but uh, so, so, so the, the, it begins like this. Kiss me, your mouth on mine. Your love is more intoxicating than wine. Your skin yields fragrant oil. The very thought of you releases my own perfume. No wonder young women crave you. This is the this is uh, the, the 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 woman speaking to the, to the man. Quickly pull me into your secret place. Let us grow wild in one another, drunk on love's wine. Young women are right to desire you. I am black and beautiful, O daughters of Jerusalem. Black as Kedar's goat hair tents. 
beautiful as Solomon's finest curtains. I'm darker than sun-baked skin, yet don't let my darkness entrap you. My mother's sons feared me and forced me to tend their vineyards, while my own vineyard I could not tend. Tell me, my true love, you for whom my breath pants, where does your flock graze? Where do they lay down at noon? Must I wander as a whore veiled among the flocks of your companions? And then the seeker of wisdom responds, so the, 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 the other lover responds, well, if you don't know my fairest, follow the tracks of the flock and graze your goats in the cooler grass beside my shepherd's tents. Like a mare among Pharaoh's stallions, you compel me to you, my friend. Your cheeks offset with hooped earrings, your neck encircled with jewels. I will make your, you earrings of gold studded with silver, lying with my, and then she responds, lying with my king on his couch, my body fills the air with the scent of yearning. Lying between my breasts, my lover is fragrant as myrrh. His spice intoxicates me like a fragrant cluster of henna blossoms from Engedi. I think you get it, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> um, this is hot stuff, okay? <laughs> and, 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 um, you know, and, the, and so the question becomes, why? Why? Why is this in the camp? Why is this part of the Bible? And why particularly do we read this story, th th this book, on Passover? What, what, what's, what's, the, what's the connection? I mean, there's a superficial connection. There's, there's the whole idea of spring. There's the whole idea of, you know, lovers getting, you know, uh, getting together, becoming excited with each other, you know, in, in, the, in the spring. Uh, when, it, when the blossoms are, are coming forth and so on. But there's, there's a deeper meaning to this, right? I mean, Rabbi, taught, Rabbi uh, uh, Knopf talked about the idea of, um, of religion being a technology that helps us sort of flourish, right? To, 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 to become more human, you know, to, to, to grow as human beings. And I would say that one of the things that's so fundamentally important for our growth is relationship, is the way that we interact and relate to each other. And what more important way do we relate to each other than through the process of love and attraction? Um, the physical process, but also the process of, 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 of creative, um, you know, understanding of, of, of thinking of one another in a, in a very positive and, and, and being attracted um, to who the, the other is. Um, one of the, so there's the, this, this idea of the, of the personal sense of interaction between two human beings on, on, on that level. Um, and then there's the concept of this being an allegory, of this being sort of a story of love that links two entities together. Um, and the rabbis, you know, th um, looked at this and, um, and thought about it, um, as an allegory, um, between, and this is an allegory that recurs frequently, uh, in Tanakh, between God and Israel, where God is the one side of the relationship and Israel, the people, is the other side of the relationship. And that relationship is one of tension, of attraction, 